G'day, mate. Pointy here, back with Duvid. And uh, Duvid, interesting story coming out of the Supreme Court and New York City. The U.S. Supreme Court this afternoon requires Yeshiva University, which is a modern Orthodox school, to allow an LGBT student club. So Orthodox Judaism, as people should know, is not the most pro-homosexuality uh, culture around. So from the perspective of traditional Orthodox Judaism, men having sex with, with men is an abomination. So from the And yet a club that essentially celebrates that, it has to be allowed on campus. So, uh, David, do, do you have any reaction to this? Yeah, I mean, this... Both of these have been ongoing issues for decades in, in, in the courts back and forth uh, with the homosexual club at uh, YU and secular education, yeshiva, and they're related, you know, to, to what's the middle ground and to not wanting, uh, you know, government involvement or, or regulation because once they start regulating you, next thing you know, you know, you're going to have to have a gay club in your yeshiva. So, uh, you know, to some extent, it uh, vindicates the fear of uh, of the yeshivas of not wanting to open a window at all. But at the same time, like, it's America and these are the rules of the country uh, we live in. I think, I mean, I don't know whatever happened to Jakey Jake. The very first show I was on of yours and, you know, it was with Jakey Jake and he pounded me for, you know, for months about, you know, kind of being lenient towards homosexuals and like relatively to American society, I'm pretty homophobic, but I just like, look, I'm not going to oppress them. I'll work together with them, you know, live and let live. I just, uh, you know, kind of find uh, their behavior uh, bad. And if someone asked me personally, I would uh, recommend um, against it, but, but uh, you know, cause it's, uh, it's America. And if uh, you know, you're modern Orthodox, uh, you don't really have a choice in the matter. Right. I mean, you can have, you know, all the internal feelings that you want, but you can't necessarily articulate them to the general public. And so we do live in a wider society. And when that wider society changes, that inevitably has an effect on Jewish life, even Orthodox Jewish life, which is regarded as incredibly insular. But once you start having same-sex marriage in the wider society, that's going to affect Jewish life. Now, the Talmud respected the Romans for not many things, right? The Talmud is generally anti-Roman, but it does respect them for not performing marriages between men and men. So the, the idea of same-sex marriage is just completely anathema to traditional Judaism, and the idea of having a club is for homosexuals. People who you know, identify as homosexual is just completely anathema. And then the whole idea of an identity based around a sexual preference is also just inconceivable from a traditional Jewish perspective. You would not find Orthodox Jewish BDSM clubs. You would not find, you know, Orthodox Jewish, you know, any heterosexual kink that you name, the idea that, that uh, Orthodox Jews would publicly identify with a particular you know, sexual preference and then form a club and an identity and a life around that is just completely foreign to the, the traditional Jewish way of life and repellent from the traditional Jewish perspective. 
Any any thoughts, David? Yeah, I mean, we discussed you know the theoretical Jewish law, how Judaism operates, you know, for for years now. And uh, you know, I always reiterate that Jewish law wants us to succeed, and generally, Jewish law could be modified or sometimes even uh, ignored for getting ahead in business, you know, and for our safety and the exceptions for safety are much higher for getting ahead in business. But, you know, the question is, where's that line? And the other day we were talking about idolatry, uh, but, you know, in theory, you know, there's the big three, every yeshiva boy knows the big three, which is uh, you got to give up your life for sexual immorality, murder, or idolatry, that if it's a choice between death or committing one of those sins, no exception. Um, but uh, your safety, you could violate any other mitzvah. Any of the other 613 mitzvahs, commandments, you could uh, violate for safety, for health. And the majority of them, you could at least make loopholes around for uh, getting ahead in business. So something like homosexuality is most, I think most uh, your rabbinic scholars would hold is from the big three. So if someone said you have to partake in this act of homosexuality or be killed, that uh, your Jewish law should say, I would, I'll accept death. I will not partake in this homosexual act. But uh, if you have a school and the school has a club, you know, so Yeshiva University has had this, uh, um, you know, question for years and like getting ahead in business uh, versus safety. Well, I mean, can you have a club? Can you have homosexual students? Can you turn a blind eye to their homosexual activity in order to get ahead in America, which Yeshiva University generally has? They want to have a top rated university. It has a medical school, a uh, business school. I mean, uh, when Bernie Madoff, you know, before Bernie Madoff fell, uh, Yeshiva University in business was basically considered Ivy League. After the fall of Bernie Madoff, it's probably, you know, not not uh, in as high regard, but it's still relatively high regard. And, you know, Albert Einstein Medical School may have been spun off, but, uh, you know, the law school, um, you know, so these things that allow modern Orthodox people to get ahead in America doesn't mean that, uh, you know, God forbid we have to partake in homosexuality, but it means that we have to kind of uh, turn a blind eye to it happening around us, as opposed to the Haredim are drawing a stronger line that say, well, uh, no, like uh, we're going to fight if it means having to accept it in our community and, uh, you know, having to take these clubs in these various things. And somewhat with the yeshiva education that says, like, we're not even going to open the door. And I made the point in the comment section to you about all the intersectionality with the yeshiva and generally the Republicans historically have defended uh, you know, the yeshiva's right uh, because it's an intersection to critical race theory that, uh, you know, like you're saying, all we want is you to learn basic math and English. And you're saying like, no way. Like if you start getting the government interfering in our school system, you're going to start teaching critical race theory and you're going to start, uh, you, you know, um, promoting homosexuality in uh, all these various things. It's not just uh, your basic math and reading skills. 
And uh, an additional thought I have about this Yeshiva University story is, is how important it is to have, have power. So this ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court was five to four. So Justice John Roberts went over to the, the liberal side, and uh, so did uh, Justice Kavanaugh. So if there'd been one more conservative on the court, this likely would not have happened. Just like if Republicans were in power, you wouldn't see all these Republicans getting served with subpoenas by, by the FBI and being dragged in for questioning and having their, their phones and computers taken away. There's simply no substitute for having power if you want to look out for the, the best interests of your people. So, just to clarify, yeah. I don't think they actually ruled on it. They just said they weren't going to overturn the state that the yeshiva university could still appeal it and take it to the supreme court uh, but the supreme court uh, just ruled that they're not going to put a stop order on the current ruling of the state supreme court so it, you know it's yet and it could it could actually make the supreme court uh, in the next few years so it's a uh, minor and you know president trump promises made promises kept even orthodox jews uh you know supported president trump because of you know, exactly what you're saying, that they believed that he was going to uh, appoint conservative judges in uh, you know these matters as a as a matter of power, even if they didn't really like Trump as a character. They're saying like winning is important, and if Trump wins, they believed him that uh, you know like he followed through on the appointing of uh, Supreme Court justices. I was just glancing at Tucker Carlson, and he's going off on Biden is engaging in classic totalitarianism. And I, I would submit to you, David, that for an ordinary person, there's there's no change in 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 their lives, whether it's Trump in the White House or Joe Biden in the White House. Like nothing materially changes. That uh, that if if politics is your hobby, then and you have strong preferences, then you'll feel good or feel bad, depending on who's in the White House and how they're doing. But for a regular person who's simply not interested in politics. I can't imagine how they would experience any significant changes in their life, whether Donald Trump's in office or Barack Obama or Joe Biden. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's saying if you're involved in politics, and it goes back to the Ronnie Goldman book about conservatism and as politics and culture, and in politics, you know, it's about winning. And, you know, Trump, we got, you know, like conservatives got behind Trump because they felt that anybody else would have lost and even with his uh, shortfallings, that uh, it was worth it that he might win for, you know, what he was able to do. Now, Roe v. Ro Wade was overturned and uh, various things. But uh, I wouldn't say if you're interested in politics, but you're involved in politics. And that's generally how the U.S. system works, is that it's the spoil system. Uh, the president gets to, you know, put things in charge like attorney general, FBI, uh, various things. And it's not really totalitarianism. He's just using the power of the federal government to help his side win elections in November. So, you know, if you're conservative and you're just, well, I want to be a conservative and have a conservative lifestyle. And I think it sucks that we're losing the culture war versus I'm on the battlefield trying to get candidates elected and they're doing dirty tricks everything within the you know the power of the law and possibly stuff even beyond the power of the law in order you know to, that they win uh the elections in order that they could win the culture wars
So what, if anything, do you believe uh, governments, secular governments, can require of Hasidic schools? Well, they really can't. I saying like, they don't get that much funding already. And you know, so the guidelines are in place. And it's just a question of enforcing it. So there had been, you know, through uh, Hasidic lobbying and Orthodox groups, and even the, you know, the, the modern Orthodox and friends of the Jewish community, Catholics, that uh, they were going to allow the yeshivas basically to self-regulate themselves. So, you know, the New York Times, like, you know, call it, like, I'll call it hit piece, you could call it different, um, has little to do with the actual legislation because all the legislation uh, does is put the regulation back in the state and then the enforcement mechanism is still the local school board. So, you know, there's going to be court cases to, uh, you know, try to, limit the power of the state so the state doesn't actually have the authority to uh, regulate the yeshivas. Um, and if they lose that and the state does start regulating the yeshivas, they'll still be in local power in the local school boards and local uh, government officials. And even if the local government officials were uh, you know, very active and gung-ho, it's very difficult to proactively force people to do something. And all they could do is you really levy financial fines. They could uh, close down schools. Um, and, you know, God forbid, like, you know, if you're familiar with Jewish history, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, Jews think of like Russia or periods of time where Jewish education uh, was forbidden. Um, you know, so if there was some mass move, to shut down Hasidic schools uh, and all of a sudden the government shut them down. Um, you know, God forbid it'd be unclear what would happen. So, you know, I think in terms of the legalities of the technocracy, what actually the government's going right, to do. I, I, yeah, but I'm not asking you about that. I asked you what rights, if any, do secular governments have with regard to regulating Hasidic schools? And you said very clearly none. That's your position. They have no rights. Well, I mean, if you're talking morally, does what right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a libertarian, so um, you know, if you're just talking practically. What I'm can the government morally. do? I'm not, you know, you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, so we're not talking legally. I'm asking you morally. What rights do secular governments have to regulate Hasidic schools? And your answer is none. Yeah, I'm, I'm a libertarian. That's probably partially why I came to defend the Hasidim. And actually, when I first spoke to you, and I considered myself as part of the alt right and even talking to white separatists was this libertarian basis of Hasidim in, in saying that, you know, Trump was going to come in and kind of allow the Hasidim to uh, self-regulate. And if there was some sort of big tent uh, movement, and, you know, if you remember our very first streams, I talked about multicultural conservatism, where I pictured America having a whole bunch of little like subsections like like uh Hasidic villages that would you know be Muslims and Hindus and uh you know even whites that uh, would be able to have uh you know subcultures that are uh self regulated so that's you know somewhat how I get involved in the alt right in the first place and what uh 
what interests do non-Jews have who, who are neighbors and uh, taxpayers living around Hasidic schools? Do, do non-Jews living around Hasidim have any interest? Do they have any stake in what happens in Hasidic schools? Well, I mean, God forbid, there's a lot of culture wars in terms of neighborhoods and Hasidic Jews moving over uh, into new neighborhoods, taking over a white flight, and then they're becoming new Hasidic neighborhoods. So if if you're talking about things like zoning, so there's a lot of big issues in Lakewood and in Rockland County in areas where the largely white neighbors don't like what the Hasidim are doing. Uh, you had mentioned the, you know, the article in the UNS report, I think from uh, you know Kevin McDonald's Accidental Observer on uh, um, zoning in Australia. So there's a lot of things related to zoning in building practices like multi-dwelling uh, units, uh, schools in uh, you know in basements, and uh, various lifestyle like Arab communal living in uh, you know, generally individualistic uh, white communities. So uh, that's a huge issue. In Brooklyn, there's less of an issue because most of the minorities that, uh, you know, the individualistic whites don't really exist in Brooklyn anymore. Um, you know, and if they do, you know, they're, they're Poles or Italians or Irish that are also more communal and will compromise with the Hasidim because they also want to have some sort of uh, communal living. So most of the problems occur when, uh, you know, Hasidim are moving into individualistic uh, suburban uh, white areas. And then there's turf battles in, you know, New York City, Williamsburg, uh, Far Rockaway, between, you know, Blacks, Hispanics, and Jews, largely over who gets uh, the government benefits. Um, zoning and various things but but you know generally there's not that much pressure from other minorities to uh you know to move in and uh, you know see to it that the government uh um you know regulates how other people live that's almost something exclusively um you know, rather like suburban and you know white uh, waspy protestant uh, type things but those battles are taking place uh, you're mostly outside of New York City, like Lakewood, New Jersey, Rockland County. Right. You're essentially saying that uh, non-Jews have you know, very little interest in how Hasidic Jews conduct themselves and conduct their schools. Well, no, I'm saying that uh, generally whites just don't like Orthodox Jews moving into their neighborhood and will do everything to stop them. And once they lose will abandon the neighborhoods and leave it to the Hasidim. Other minorities don't really mind. There's turf battles and wars. Uh, but but in terms of like questioning like how we run our schools, uh, zoning for you know multi-dwelling houses, putting up an Arab in the various things where there are battles, even like Matsitsa Balpe, there's limited problems from other minorities. And then I said there's a lot of issues basically I would say every single white community fights when Orthodox Jews move in. And if Orthodox Jews win, eventually the whites will move away. I don't know if you agree with that uh, assessment, 
Well, it, it depends on how the Jews conduct themselves. So how, how Hasidic Jews, how modern Orthodox Jews, how secular Jews conduct themselves will have a tremendous effect on how non-Jews relate to them. Do you agree with that or do you deny that? Well, I, I would agree with that, but you know, generally, once um, Jews move in, Orthodox Jews will move in and then other minorities will move in. It might take decades. And you know, usually the first issue is the Arab. So if you're a modern Orthodox Jew and you're living relatively in line with um, individualistic you know, Western uh, Anglo norms, you know, maybe you have your own modern Orthodox private school. So the first thing generally is an Arab. But once there's an Arab and the amenities for Orthodox, for the modern Orthodox, generally the more black hat Orthodox and Hasidim will follow. So just like in LA, that it might have taken a hundred years, but now there's you know probably tens of thousands of black hat Orthodox Jews and Hasidim. And if there's modern Orthodox Jews, it's sometimes only a few years, sometimes a few decades away from their you know, being uh, Orthodox and even you know, Jews at all, that uh, you're know, short of the Jews converting to Christianity, that uh, you know, it's just a general trend that uh, you know, first you'll have an assimilated Jew that moves into the neighborhood, then the assimilated Jew will uh, you know, bring their more religious uh, your friends to the neighborhood, then they'll be Orthodox, then they're going to bring Blacks and Hispanics and other minorities, and then after a few decades, all the whites are going to move out. And basically, that's happened uh, everywhere across the U.S. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, Jews are a majority of the population in Beverly Hills, but whites are, are moving out of there. Uh, Jews are a very significant uh, population in many parts of West Los Angeles. Jew Jews aren't moving out. So again, it depends on how Jews conduct themselves, which is brings me back to the Hasidic school uh, system and the New York Times story. So if Hasidic schools you know, educate kids who aren't capable of uh, speaking very good English, that's going to damage relations between Hasidim and the non-Jews around them and give Hasidim a bad name. If Jewish schools educate kids to disregard the, the humanity and the importance of non-Jews and to, God forbid, uh, deal with them in, in a dishonest fashion, that's going to affect how, how non-Jews relate to them. So I'm thinking about Postville, Iowa. It's a uh, City in Iowa, it uh, got a big meatpacking plant uh, set up by Hasidic Jews. And then with the meatpacking plant, it got an influx of Latino, you know, frequently illegal laborers who, who moved in. And so this completely disrupted life in Postville. And by and large, the Hasidic Jews uh, had, had no interest in getting along with their non-Jewish neighbors. And so the non-Jewish neighbors would say good morning and the Hasidic Jews would just ignore them. Now, this isn't inherent to being Hasidic. This has, I think, a lot to do with uh, being from New York. These Hasidim were from New York. In in New York, there's, there's you know, not as much of the customary courtesies. But the way that the Hasidic Jews conducted themselves in Postville led to a huge backlash against them and 
it, it came back to, to bite them. So how Hasidic schools, how any Jewish school or Jewish community conducts itself is going to have a profound effect on how non-Jews relate to them. And I want to read here from the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed, What Rights Do Hasidic Schools Have? by columnist William Goldston. Governments can impose some limits on religion when there is a compelling reason. So he says, uh, state tests suggest that these Hasidic schools have poorly served their students, who are mostly educated in Yiddish, emerge with little mastery of course subjects and without a working knowledge of English. If so, this would not be an accident. The leaders of these communities see the modern world as a threat to their way of life, do everything in their power to insulate their members from its effects. Education in secular subjects in the English language is a threat. It is a dangerous bridge to the outside world. So this columnist says, as a condition for receiving public funds, students in these schools should be required to take New York State's math and English tests in the third and eighth grade, or students should graduate with the ability to speak and read English. And he says, although religious groups have the constitutional right to protect their communal practices, they aren't allowed to imprison their young by denying them the capacity to live anywhere else if they choose. This freedom is essential to American citizenship. So... Jews have the right to vote. They use that to promote their interests, but in return, they must accept the responsibilities of citizenship. It's not a one-way street. And so if Jewish communities and Jewish schools turn out people who are frequently a detriment to the, the non-Jews around them, then there's going to be a backlash against Jews and very likely uh, government regulation and interference. Any thoughts, David? Yeah, if we go back to this point, because I strongly disagree, and I studied urban planning, and you know, I was just reading this book on the history of the Hamptons in uh, Long Island, and you know, there used to be very few Jews there, and it was even somewhat anti-Semitic. There were clubs that didn't allow Jews. There were covenants on houses that restricted people from selling to blacks and Jews, and a handful of Jews got in, you know, even converted to Christianity and married non-Jews, but they eventually donated property for a synagogue going back in this in uh you know decades ago when they were still you know not really that Jewish. That you know they were just Jews who completely assimilated. Most people didn't even know that they were Jewish. Uh however they built a synagogue and now the Hamptons is like 30% Jewish. There's a synagogue that has like a thousand people on uh, Rosh Hashanah in Detroit, um, you know, generally that was the basic bigotry that it doesn't matter once you allow Jews into the neighborhood, no matter how how assimilated, uh, where uh, collective people and one of two things: one, that the Jews assimilate just so that we could you know, basically get ahead, but once we're settled we'll go more back to our Judaism, that we might shave and, you know, keep less Sabbath and eat, eat less kosher food. But once we financially get ahead, um, we're more likely to return to orthodoxy. And this goes back to the Inquisition, uh, even to, to Roman times. And, you know, you think in uh, Hollywood, there, you know, there were almost no Orthodox Jews. The Jews assimilated, uh, married non-Jews. However, it was those Jews that brought their cousins there and then donated money to uh, you know, Chabad and other organizations so that Orthodox Jews could come 
in basically every neighborhood in Los Angeles that at one point had no Orthodox Jews, but a sizable population of uh, secular assimilated, even uh, converts to Christianity, intermarried Jews, eventually became an Orthodox community. And I said, like, I've studied the urban planning. It's like that everywhere across the United States. And if you wanted to take the old school racist attitude, it's say that you'll, you'll get a blonde haired blue eyed Jew who converted to Christianity. You'll let them into your neighborhood and then they'll bring their cousin and uh, they'll bring their cousin. And next thing you know, you got Orthodox Jews. And next thing you know, you got blacks. And, uh, you know, in Detroit, it certainly happened that way. Every single neighborhood where Jews used to live is now a black neighborhood in, in Chicago it's that way. And I would assume that in Los Angeles, I do the research that it's largely that way too, where you know, Jews started moving in, even though they you know, assimilated, even converted to Christianity, married non-Jews. Eventually they brought their cousins. And, uh, and, and now most of the historical Jewish neighborhoods are uh, black neighborhoods, God forbid. I, mean, I don't know if you wanted to argue that point or if you want to go back to uh, you know, the, yeah, the well, journal. I'll I, I somewhat argue that point in that where, where Jews live and where blacks live are about as disparate as, as you can as you can get. I mean, Jews tend to, to lead white flight, and it's not like if a Jew moves into a neighborhood, there's inevitably a swarm of Hasidim who will follow. Hasidim are only about 2 3% of Jews in the world. There are only about 400,000 Hasidim in the world. So they, they tend to live in New York City or in, in Israel. There are very few Hasidic Jews outside of New York City. So I, I don't see the inevitable trajectory that you're talking about where if, if Jews move in, then Hasidic Jews are, are sure to, to follow. Hasidic well, there's Jews thousands are, in L.A. now, right? There's thousands of Hasidim in L.A. now. And there's a massive influx because you have modern Orthodox and then Yeshivish, that there's a massive influx of Hasidim to uh, Los Angeles in, in you know, Miami and in, in New York, that there's, you know, constantly, um, you know, Rockland County, there, you know, there were no Jews in Rockland County. Rockland County was anti-Semitic. They had covenants that was uh, illegal to sell property to Jews. And now, you know, they're dominated by uh, Hasidim and, uh, you're saying that like Los Angeles at some point was almost all white and of the areas that are black. I mean, now there's all sorts of minorities everywhere, but uh, usually there's a trajectory of a connection between black and Jewish uh, communities. And it follows a line where they first let Jews in and then other minorities come. And then it's completely minorities. If you think like Chicago is a great example, like uh, where president Obama came from used to be uh Lincoln Park, or if I get the names, the neighborhood used to be a Jewish neighborhood. The Jews pushed for, further into the suburbs, and now it's a completely black neighborhood. And, and uh, you know, like Baltimore, Miami, uh, majority of the major cities have this uh, uh, pattern. That's why they had covenants, and they were so strict in America on not allowing Jews to move into neighborhoods. And even people are like, well, I don't mind the Jews that much, but the idea was that once you let the Jews in, the Jews are going to let uh, uh, the blacks in. I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, with the history and, you know, like uh, that there was rules across America that you couldn't sell property to Jews. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that, but Jews didn't ha have the, the power that you attribute to them. That, that At the most, they've been about 3% of the American population. So to the extent that uh, American immigration policies dramatically liberalized, it, it wasn't primarily on the basis of Jews, though Jews do punch above their weight. And so for, for many Jews, they did have an interest in a more multicultural America with more civil rights laws and protections for minorities and Jews have by and large sided with the the coalition of the fringe against the the white Christian core when it when it comes to politics but still we're talking with Hasidim talking about 400,000 in the world so the, the number of non-Lubavitch Hasidim in in Los Angeles may be about 100 and then Lubavitch Hasidim are far more assimilated they you know, are much more adept at uh, getting along with non-Jews and non-Orthodox Jews. So they're almost an entirely different kettle of fish compared to the, the other forms of Hasidic Jewry. Let me go to this New York Review of Books review of uh, two... Can I mention one, one point quickly on this? When I said across America, I didn't, I didn't mean like every town and village because you know, generally 90% of Jews in totality live in like 10 urban areas. And I think over 75% of all the Jews in America from Hasidic to secular live in, uh, you're just New York City, L.A., Miami, Baltimore, Chicago, those uh, those areas. And so Hasidim are not popping up all over like every city, uh, but in the urban areas. And generally, even in L.A., like Jews live in similar areas because, uh, you know, if there's half a million Jews in Los Angeles and 1.5 million Jews in uh, you know met Metro New York, and uh, you know I think there's close to a million Jews in you know Baltimore, the D.C. area, and Miami, and Chicago. The Jewish communities are almost all right next to each other, where you're like relatively in the cityscape that uh, you know the Orthodox and the and the completely secular live in the same part of town. It might be separated by you know, like 10 miles, but it's the same uh, part of town. So I meant all across America. I meant the major urban centers all across America. Okay, back to the New York Review of Books here. Strangers in a Strange Land. It's from the February 24, 2022 issue. Two recent books investigate the Kenny mastery of housing politics that has allowed the Hasidic Satmar sect to build thriving, isolated communities in Brooklyn and upstate New York. So these two books, one's from Yale University, A Fortress in Brooklyn, Race, Real Estate, and the Making of Hasidic Williamsburg. Then the other is by David Myers from Princeton University Press, American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Yol, a Hasidic village in upstate New York. Both of these books get a uh, very positive review. But uh, the bit that I want to focus on is this whole notion of ascetic jo joy. So Hasidim are you know, supposed to be incredibly joyous. This was a joyous movement of Judaism that developed in the 18th and 19th century away from the, the more uh, somber forms of, of uh, Orthodox Judaism that were promoted by, say, the Litvaks and, and by the Germans. But you don't see Hasidic joy on the street, all right? So unless you're inside the dance, you're not going to see a lot of Hasidic joy, right? Anyone outside the community is not going to hear the songs. It's not going to hear the prayers. It's not going to, you know, see the, the dancing. It's not going to, you know, get get a taste of Hasidic joy. There are a lot of mysteries 
and pleasures in life that are only available to those in the dance. So ascetic joy, right? You, you, you've heard about it. You may have read books about it. You may have seen videos about it, but you're really only going to get a taste of it if you're inside the sect, which is not easy to do. So people lead you know, very different lives, all right? Your, your manager at work may be a jerk, but at home he may be, you know, kind and gentle to his wife. Your, your concentration camp guard may be a big meanie, but at home, again, he might be kind and gentle. The Hasidim that you might de deal with on the street or in business may be brusque and e even rude, but uh, not necessarily exhibiting all sorts of joy. If you want to you know, see Hasidic joy, you essentially have to be a Hasid or to have access to Hasidic life. Anything you want to add to that, David? Yeah, and then God forbid the joy is hard to see because Hasidim generally avoid contact, uh, you know, saying that with the people on the street, you know, walk with their head down. If you say hello to them, they may not even respond. And uh, communication is generally limited to... Uh, community uh you know liaisons community leaders that are, are more confrontational and you know, there are, there is some shared joy if you live in a jewish community you might uh you know as a non-jew get invited to weddings or into some events or, or feel some part of that but uh yeah the joy is largely kept for inside the home and uh we discussed at length also the nature of any Orthodox society, but, you know, Hasidim even more so of the, you really, it's just the adult males who go into business that deal with the outside world. So even in the modern Orthodox community, the women and children are largely isolated. You know, probably even your average modern Orthodox uh, Jewish, uh, your women or child, uh, doesn't have any non-Jewish friends or regular contacts. They might go to the game or the library or the opera or events, but they you probably don't maintain uh, non-Jewish friends. And if it's a uh, Hasidim, it'll be, you know, even stronger where, where culturally uh, that, uh, you know, they won't even uh, have a means that, that uh, you know, if they have their own community where it's, you know, like the shtetl and there's no outside contact, uh, where it's not even, uh, you are like modern Orthodox who don't have non-Jewish friends, but indulge in non-Jewish culture, that, uh, you know, the Hasidim will, besides for certain elements of the larger culture that they like and pick up on, are largely completely isolated, uh, besides for the adult Jewish males that enter the business world. And even among the Hasidim, you have you know, a certain element, 10, 20% of the adult Jewish males that are pretty well immersed in larger society, uh, deal with non-Jews uh, all the time. And, you know, it's people like them or us that help create the protective wall for the rest of the community to live isolated. And uh, Glib Medley says in the chat, is it true that the Sedum came out of the ashes of the failed Messiah Shabtai Svi? Yes, they emerged out of that detritus. And uh, Glib says, my quotidian interaction with them is when biking on the Williamsburg Bridge, either an older man walking alone or a group of, uh, I guess, lively kids. Okay, I'm going to move on. Uh, Duvid, any, any final words? Yeah, I, I enjoy this topic in talking about uh, Judaism. I think that 
it's probably going to disappear pretty quickly because said like legislatively there's not much juice to the issue and uh you know there's not like much to follow there's not going to be something that happens you know like it'll probably be months before you know something happens if inspectors start you know arriving in uh hasidic schools so uh you know i enjoyed talking about it if you want to keep on talking about it but i'm not sure if you agree that, it, that it's just a blip on the radar related to the vote and, and it's probably going to disappear from uh, the news circuit in the next few days well i'll find out i don't have a strong opinion so thanks for coming on the show david talk to you later man bye-bye okay let's get a little burst here from uh, richard spencer on his twitter the space government. and i'm sure that they you know knocked the windows out of a post office or did something in Talk a public property. Black I'm just positive matter. they did. But at no point were they declaring that they were going to do, do something as dramatic as that. The one instance that was basically treated as benign hippiedom. So he's saying, why didn't the federal government crack down on Black Lives Matter like it did on the January 6th rioters? And I would say the number one answer is that where Democrats had control, they went easy on their own, Black Lives Matter supporters. And they went aggressively against their opponents, Donald Trump supporters. Was the, you know, um, the rapper in Seattle who kind of created an anarchist, anarchic village for, you know, a week or something. And it was basically treated as, oh, this is the summer of 68 all over again. It was treated as not really capable of doing anything. January 6th was absolutely buffoonish, but it on the, at the same time, it wasn't just a bunch of guys getting drunk in the Washington Mall. I mean, they, you know, if you go and get drunk and raise hay in the Washington Mall, you'll probably be arrested as well. You're not going to spend months or years in jail is that it was a concerted effort from the town to prevent the transfer of power. And even if it was buffoonish, this notion that it just like materialized, you know, it was just like random Americans just happened upon the ball and decided to speak their mind. I mean, it, it, that's just such a fantastical notion of what it actually was. It was buffoonish it, it, as hell, but it was real. It, it, was, it was buffoonish because of the guys that were there. Had they been Navy SEALs, it would have been a whole different situation. If they were no, I agree. <laughs> if they were even a little competent, yeah, true. Gotten to a few, like more than a few congressmen. If they were even a little competent, yeah. And I mean, but but they weren't. I mean, it was a, it was a bunch of jackass. Uh, but that doesn't matter. Like attempted murder is still criminal, even if you can't. I, I, and come on, you can't storm into Congress and not expect to get in trouble for that, right? Like, like I, they, they did it for Brett Kavanaugh. They literally police. stormed the entire. How many, they, how many police there? They, they did not storm with, it with, with in a, an aggressive with manner with zip ties, yeah. like those okay. both of January sixth did. How many it was a bunch of just shit lib vegans that were crying about Kavanaugh because whatever he was accused of doing. It, 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 like it, you can't equate a 120 pound shit lib vegan to like a dude decked out with zip ties. They also didn't through any police lines. They weren't. They didn't like bust through police barricades during. The I didn't mean to be mean to vegans. You're, you, vegans are okay, I guess. Whatever. I, I just, I just want to <laughs> add something. I just want to add something as well because there is a there's a particular bit of footage where, and I'm British, so I don't know the layout of the building or anything like. But they're going up. There's a crowd and they're going up some staircase. Um, and it's a black police officer and he's constantly retreating up and up the staircase and he's telling them to get back and stay down and they repeatedly go through the same process up a flight of stairs he tells them he goes back up a flight of stairs they follow him over and over and over again from what I've seen is like the police are actually quite um, uh, tame and, or, or they're quite you know reserved in their in their response so this idea that you know I think there's this idea among Magarites that's like oh you know the, they will immediately crack down yeah I agree with this analysis I do think the police were quite tame in their response to the January 6th riots. I don't think that was that's not what I saw just, you know, with your own well, it was, it, it was amb ambiguous because particularly at the beginning, at the first breach, you had some of these scenes like that police officer who, who was almost getting crushed by the door 
And you have these scenes that, you know, maybe they are a bit overblown in retrospect, but like that woman who testified saying it was like a war zone or something. I mean, you know, a bit yeah, overblown, yeah. granted, but I, I don't doubt that like clearly people could have died in that in that scenario. And there was a lot of like really serious pushing and shoving, smashing of windows and so on. Then you sure, also I'm, I'm coming at it from the, I'm coming like, at it from the sorry. I'm coming well, at it from the you claim, also but... have scenes of like particularly later on of the police just effectively letting people in. So yeah. and, and I think that was kind of like a tactic at some point. And and also a, a lot of people just, you know, they just seem less aggressive and dangerous. Like if you see 20 crowd boys, like middle-aged men who lift weights and, you know, have beards or whatever, you're going to be a lot more than like some goofy kid or some old woman or something. So like, it, it's just the whole thing. Yeah. It, it was a complete shit show. And if you want to focus on like this five minutes of footage, you can say this was purely peaceful. If you want to focus on this five minutes, you can say this was purely hilarious. It was just a bunch of yahoos making hay. Okay, you can focus on this five minutes. You can say, holy shit, they were about to literally take over the government. And they were absolutely violent. You, it's it's all it's all correct. It's all of that was there. It was a shit show. <laughs> that dude, the zip ties. I watched this video of them, and yeah. I was just on the ground rolling. Like that dude was so into it, and he had the, like he had like a hundred zip ties. I was like, yep. I thought like maybe it was just like a couple of zip ties. He had like a big roll of them on his side. And I mean, well, he's like looking around, like, like he has this intense look in his eyes yeah, and he's like yeah. looking around and I'm like, holy cow, this dude is Rambo or something. Like that's, it, it, it was funny, man. It was, it was really actually funny. I think a lot of people were, were active. My favorite scene was this lady um, who, she got interviewed by some like liberal journalist or whatever. And she came up to the journalist. I think she, I think she even like went to the journalist to get, you know, her, say her piece. And she was like, they used tear gas on me. Like, they pushed me down. Like, you know, I don't know what's Is this America or something? And the journalist asked, like, okay, so you're, you're claiming abuse. Like, what, what were you here for? And she was like, it's a revolution. <laughs> Listen, if it is a revolution, <laughs> you have basically wagered your life. Like, you, the idea that they use tear gas should be, like, the least of your concerns. It, it becomes more, If it's you're, you're, not you're, a revolution, then I agree. Like, if, if you're, like, hanging out on the Capitol, holding up a sign, and a policeman tear gases you, obviously that's outrageous. But... You know, it's like, it's, it's choose one, you know, like, they're not just going to let you do this. And according to you, they're all like satanic fascists or something. So like, what, what, what surprises you about the fact that they used tear gas? That is non-lethal temporary ones that are annoying. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, Richard's analysis here. But yeah. it's not yeah. dangerous. So, so um, from, from a number of comments, I would deduce that uh, you, you maybe are not a Fed. You know, I, I thought that probably if you are a Fed, you, you would have most likely just banned me and uh, shut me up real quick and taken away uh, uh, speaking uh, privileges, right? You uh, disagree with uh, Yeah, I do agree. I, I do disagree with that. Um, I think that it was a huge disturbance, maybe maybe the largest civil dis disturbance that's ever occurred in the United States. And you uh, think that it was mostly peaceful. Yes, mostly means at least the majority of all of it was peaceful. I mean, you said it was a disturbance. I mean, I guess I could more or less agree with that language. But yeah, the vast majority... It could both be a disturbance of, and mostly peaceful. Like, could you yeah, shut I mean, up and let Richard talk? I mean, well, could you, could no, you please? I'm, I'm, I'm in control of the space. I'm the moderator. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of retards are just not chiming in. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> mostly means that the majority, and I, I would say the vast majority of it, was peaceful stuff. I mean, it was absolutely a protest, and they disrupted traffic. Like, of course, it got very violent, um, and I think actually just got totally out of control. And uh, there's good reason, actually, why, like, public support for BLM declined significantly. I think they had won over a lot of, like, mainstream Republicans and liberals, actually, at the beginning, when it was basically like a Christian revival rally, and they were, like, waving hands and getting on their knees and talking about their guilt and whatever. And then when it flipped over into, and it, granted, you could see that early on, but, but when it, by the late hot summer, when it was flipping over into, like, flames, then, yeah, it, it got out of hand. And the establishment uh, Richard, cracked question? down on it. Like, the, look, we don't see BLM protests 
anymore right now. At some point, it lost the kind of like anointing by the establishment that it had. And that's significant. Right. That is significant. Remember when Black Lives Matter protests essentially took over America? Well, times have changed. Sorry, Richard, can I ask you a question? If that's okay. Sure. Um, do you think we'll ever get close to anything like true synthesis of the January 6th event? Uh, and Right. So why did uh, Black Lives Matter protests uh, wind down? Because they provoked you know, a lot of hostility to the causes that Black Lives Matter was associated with. Why did it provoke so much hostility? Because of its effect on other people. Right. When you have a cause, when you have a group, when you have an educational system and you start producing a lot of negative effects on outsiders, they are going to become increasingly hostile. So all sorts of people who were sympathetic to black civil rights, who were sympathetic to the concerns of the black community, became increasingly hostile to black civil rights and the concerns of Black Lives Matter and the black community directly as a result of the behavior of these black civil rights activists and their allies. And the same exact point applies to Hasidim, how Hasidim conduct themselves, how Jews conduct themselves, how any minority group conducts themselves is going to have a profound effect on how outsiders regard them. How so? If so. A true synthesis? Uh, like understanding of it, you know, because like you said, oh. this, yeah. Um, well, you know, I guess maybe no, in the sense that, uh, like, do we really... You know, do we have like a true understanding of an event like 9-11 or something? No, it's it's yeah. so politically contentious. There's so many like variables that it, it will always be kind of like a, you know, a hotbed of conspiracy theory, but also kind of a hotbed of like ambiguity and sinister stuff as well. I mean, I think that's probably true. And it's been politicized to such a degree that like people are terrified of looking at it straight. So, I mean, what if I said what I said on Fox News, um, I would be like, I would offend them greatly. But also, I, I think I would also probably offend msnbc with some of my other characterizations so it's hard for anyone to like look at it so you know you have to be on msnbc you have to be like shrill and it's trump and maniacs fascists and whatever and then on, on fox it's like what was going on man there it's just you know it's just a tourist rally or you know so <laughs> you know you it's hard to see things straight and it's so politicized that i i don't know but i mean look um what's happening today i don't know if you saw but like there are uh, multiple subpoenas i think there was like 50 subpoenas sent out today about the j6 issue um, of close confidants with Trump. So the DOJ is pursuing that. That's a legal trial, which is kind of different maybe than like a historical assessment. But um, I, I think a, a lot is going to come out. And um, it's going to be, I mean, I think I'll probably have the same view of it that I have now, which is it was like a top-down inspired, bottom-up executed circus act. <laughs> so you think, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry if this is explicit, but you think it was a machination of the Trump campaign? I think absolutely, point. they absolutely had that as one way keeping Trump in office. Like the, the, the electors scheme was another, um, there, there, were, there were a lot of different options, but that was kind of a final option. And I do think that Trump genuinely wanted to like march with them to the Capitol and inspire Mike Pence to like throw away the electors and do something, accept the new electors that, that are fraudulent, legally fraudulent or something. And um, so I do think that they're trying to do that. It did, I mean, that's why I said it's like, it was like a top down inspired, but bottom up executed mm -hmm. coup attempt. I think that's very sharp analysis. It was top-down inspired on January 6th, but bottom-up executed. So some very smart people inspired January 6th, but the actual execution of it was done by not-so-smart people. And so, like, it's just never going to work. I mean, if you're going to do a coup, if you're going to fuck with the system to that degree, you need to have the military involved. They have Absolutely. to be totally on board. I mean, you just, you cannot rely on the fucking Proud Boys. I mean, not that they can't do damage or something, but like, it's, it's just bizarre 
that they thought that this thing was going to work in some way. That, that's so true. I... Speaking and... of hate, um, so, Richard... do you think that um, we're going to see a ripple, a, a repeat of 2018, where the uh, GOP get a ripple just because of... So Richard says he does not expect the band to get back together again. He has no interest in rejoining the, the alt-right. I think much of his antipathy to the alt-right is class-based. So Richard comes from an upper-class background. And I noticed that the primary descriptor that he uses for most of the characters on the alt-right is that they are gross, right? They are gross. And so as as a member of the upper class, I just don't think he wants to hang out with the proles and the plebs who, who dominate the alt-right. And I, I think this class distinction is a key part of understanding Richard Spencer's trajectory. So he was happy to lead the proles and the plebs for a while, but once they started speaking back to him, then he, he wasn't prepared to hang out with them anymore. It's kind of what I'm seeing. And I think there's just going to be some surprises, like a lot of Democrat, Democrat, Trump. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to ask you, like, this is a bit of an abstract question, but hey, you know, if we're getting to the end of it, maybe this is a nice way to end. But uh, what, like, what, what do you, if you could theorize on uh, the, the, the average, like, young Trumpian Nick Fuentes type, where do you see this person in uh, 25 years' time? Like, what's the end of the road if they carry on this path? Um, in the same place they are now. Yeah. <laughs> just older, I mean, watching live streams and getting mad about shit. And speaking of which, would you ever... Harass- Online. Would you ever be to have like a final conversation with Fuentes, whether it's to squash the beef or finally like talk out the all the tension that's been going on between you guys for a long time? Or do you think I've always really said yes to that. I've asked, people have asked me that many times, and I've, I've basically said yes. Um, so what about yeah. people like uh, George Giorgiani? I would talk with Giorgiani. I, I don't even know what Giorgiani's up to at this point, but I would he's, talk uh, to him. in charge of he's, uh, uh, yeah, he's making his own cult as well. So. Okay, so Richard, happy to talk to Nick Fuentes, but he's not going to go to the bother of arranging it. Okay, so have you checked out the woke version of uh, Lord of the Rings? Elves have forests to protect. Dwarfs their mines. Mend their fields of grain. But we Harfoots have each other. For I must now wander. new series based on Lord of the Rings and uh, there's a big article here on CNN why when wokeness comes to Middle Earth why some say diverse casting ruins the new Lord of the Rings series so if you check it out there are a lot of black actors black characters and uh, there's just been a a plethora of of castings of unexpectedly black characters uh, black actors since the, the summer of George Floyd. And many people, you know, taken aback. And sometimes I'm taken aback because it, often it just seems so obviously forced and, and imposed on us. So I remember when I wrote a book on Hollywood, I interviewed about 150 movie and TV producers, and they made the point that there are only about two black actors who could carry a, a mainstream movie, uh, Denzel Washington and uh, Will Smith. And that's, that's about it, right? If you had you know, a lead male character, right, those were the only two black actors who could carry it off. Otherwise, it would have a significantly negative impact on box office, not primarily in the United States, but around the world, right? People in China... Japan, 
elsewhere in the world, generally speaking, don't want to see uh, black leads. That was the thinking in Hollywood when I was doing these interviews in 2001, 2002. So here we've got uh, Brandon Morse. He's deputy managing editor of Red State, the conservative news site. He's read J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and he's watched extended editions of Peter Jackson's Ring Trilogy. But he's dreading a new addition to the Middle-earth canon because he says perverts will corrupt Tolkien's mythical medieval universe because TV showrunners have committed this storytelling crime. They are trying to workify Amazon's new series, The Lord of the Rings, The, the Rings of Power. And I think this is similar to the, the gay marriage controversy, that conservatives are on the back foot. They have a hard time making a case for why they object to a woke version of Lord of the Rings, right? It's hard to make a strong case against gay marriage on rational, moral, legal grounds, all right? From, from a normal person's perspective, this is gay marriage is simply extending the same rights to gay people that other people have. It's just part of a trajectory of ever expanding rights. So how does a conservative say when he wants to watch Lord of the Rings, he doesn't want to see black characters in uh, as as the, the leads in this Anglo-Saxon epic? And how does a, a trad make a case against gay marriage? And it's not easy because the... The conservative distaste for, for this kind of innovation is is visceral. Like the the trad feels it in his bones that that we're that that their order of the of the world and how things should be is being disrupted, and that when you disrupt order, a lot of bad things can happen. So the the right wing primary concern about life is disorder and contagion. The left-wing primary concern about life seems to be combating ignorance, prejudice. So from a traditional perspective, you know, gay marriage is unleashing forces that we don't, don't even understand. But we are disrupting the very fabric of the universe. We're disrupting the fabric of the, the nuclear family that sustained civilization for millennia. There's never been any civilizations that have had same-sex marriage prior to our own over, over the past uh, 25 years. So from a traditional perspective, you, you can't innovate uh, the family in this way. And you're going to unleash all sorts of demons. You're going to unleash all sorts of dark forces. We are, we are creating disorder in the universe. And so too, when you take stories that, uh, say, Anglo-Saxon stories or Japanese stories or Chinese stories or... You know, medieval stories where there simply weren't black characters around, and then you artificially interpose these black actors and black characters into these stories, you are disrupting the order of the universe, and it doesn't feel good, right? So for, for many traditional viewers, it doesn't feel good to have their stories tampered with. And so we're all sustained by stories, right? It's a biological necessity to have stories about how the world works. Right? We are biologically driven to ward off feelings of insignificance, right? Uh, one of our, our deepest fears is that our life doesn't matter, that, that we're not significant. And so to find significance, we attach ourselves to stories. So your story might be that the pursuit of science is the most noble thing a human being can do, and that has a transcendent 
eternal value because you're pursuing truth and uplift and dispelling ignorance and, and bigotry and you're making life better. So for some people, science, right? Science is the story that their lives are devoted to. For other people, God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. The Jews are God's chosen people. God gave the Jews 613 basic commandments. And by fulfilling these commandments, you are aligning yourself with God. Therefore, your life has transcendent significance, all right? You are walking and talking and acting in alignment with the master of the universe, Right? That makes you feel significant. If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and by accepting what Jesus did for you on the cross, you will live forever with, with Jesus in heaven, and it is now your duty to go out there and show love, to spread the, the love of Jesus to as many people as you can, and that provides significance to your life. For other people, they get significance because they get 17 live viewers to their YouTube stream, and so even when they're not live streaming, maybe they're often thinking about live streaming and like what, you know, provocative, important, intelligent, funny comments can I make on a live stream because I'm a live streamer, dad gummit, and I make a video and who knows how many dozens or hundreds of people will eventually find it. And so for, for, many, for many of us, like live streaming becomes a primary source of, of meaning. The most normal, natural, and healthy sources of meaning is family and friends and community. But even then, we ascribe a story whereby our family is special in the universe, that, uh, that our wife is you know, the greatest of all possible wives, that you know, our kids are special and brilliant. We always need a, a story to sustain us. And then sometimes we encounter other people's stories who not just contradict our story, but essentially deny our story, right? If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you encounter Jews who have absolutely no interest in the Christian message, you're encountering a group that completely contradicts and undercuts your story. So it would not be surprising to you know, have a great deal of antipathy to that outside group who contradicts your key story. And Laponia says, not true, 40, gay men have every right to marry a woman. J.R. Talking, Mel Gibson have the same birthday, January 3rd. Shouldn't the onus to justify be on those who seek to radically redefine marriage from how it has been defined for millennia of human history? Doesn't feel good equals gross. Ford, with the assumption you got some contacts in the Jewish community, what are you doing to stop the LGBT students to uh, enter this club at Yeshiva University? I'm not doing anything. I am just a commentator. I am not an activist. But, I mean, how many people would feel feel confident saying out loud that they don't like a black version of Lord of the Rings, right? That's all all people in polite society right would would uh, probably feel embarrassed to say something like that but we have these instinctive reactions all right we not just have instinctive stories that give our life meaning and significance but we also have instinctive reactions and when other people conduct themselves in ways that deny and degrade you know everything that we hold sacred and holy we we feel harm right i have this understanding of, of a military force that is heterosexual, right? I 
God forbid I would not like to be in a foxhole fighting a war with, with a homosexual, right? That would bother me. Uh, the, the idea of gay marriage is repellent to me. And, and I would not primarily make the argument on moral or rational grounds, though I could if I put some effort into it. I'd make the, the argument primarily on I just have an instinctive reaction against it. So I think most of our human instincts tend to be traditional and right-wing. Our human instincts are to, first of all, identify with people like us and to be suspicious and negative towards outsiders. You have to be educated and encouraged and incentivized to take on the the left-wing point of view. So when people get drunk, they tend to become more right-wing. They begin to more strongly identify with their in-group and tend to have more negative views of out-groups. You have to be incredibly disciplined and essentially uh, increasingly participate in court morality where you consider every single word you say and how it might affect other people rather than being simply the master of your domain. Right. It, it takes a lot of effort to assimilate to assimilate into the liberal buffered sense of self where each individual is a buffered autonomous strategic actor. All right, this is Walker, Texas Ranger versus the Windows. Whoa. 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 So much violence. Okay, so normies are not going to feel comfortable saying they don't like all the black actors taking what were historically characters seem to be based on, you know, Anglo-Saxon uh, proto prototypes. But uh, not a very easy case to make publicly. So Brandon Morse did on Red State, he says, Rings of Power have cast non-white actors in a story based on European culture who look wildly different from how Tolkien described them. He says it's an attempt to embed social justice politics into Tolkien's world. If you focus on introducing modern political sentiments such as the leftist obsession with identity issues that only go skin deep, then you're no longer focusing on building a good story, he says. You're effectively making propaganda or art meant to fit a message, not a message to fit the art. And when I looked at the... Reactions on IMDb, very mediocre reviews for this Amazon version of Lord of the Rings. Very high critical reviews, right? The critics love this edition, this woke edition of Lord of the Rings. Regular people, not so much. But the reason regular people feel assaulted by this is just embedded in our neurocircuitry. We have certain stories, we have certain conceptions of how the world should be, and when that's messed with, we feel violated. Right. You know, how does a, a gay couple down the block you know, negatively affect me? It's hard to rationally, morally make that case, but it messes with my conception of what marriage is. Right? It, it rips away at things that I regard as sacred. And so, too, our stories are sacred to us. Right? Every organism, not just human beings, are driven to try to create an environment in which they can most thrive. So it would make sense to me that people would primarily want to see stories about people they can most easily relate to, who will generally speaking be the people with whom they have the most in common. So if you look at ratings for, for TV shows, you see that uh, black shows primarily get black viewers, white shows primarily get white viewers. Generally speaking, white people don't watch you know, black-dominated shows. The, the Cosby show was, was quite the exception.
The chat says the Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien was insanely pro-Semitic. Lord of the Rings is only for seriously demented losers, says Laponius. And let me, let me get my act together. Before I, I go to bed at night, I like to kind of sink into a happy place. I like to kind of let go of all my cares and concerns, watch, watch a comedy. So I'm re-watching the British classic show Peep Show from 2003. This is season two, episode one. See you around? No, just gone. I'm seeing down the rhythms. Right, okay. Jez, what, why is the chair and what's all this strawberry and my yoghurt? Jez, what, what's happened to my muller? Oh, no, you haven't, have you? you? You haven't been sexing it up in here with my yoghurt? Relax, Mark, it's all right. We were just feeling very horny. I don't want to know, OK? I, I don't want to hear about it. And I don't want it using up all my yoghurt and bloody... Shower gel? Mark, I'm just in a very erotic relationship right now. I mean, we're systematically breaking down all the taboos that society has. Right, and love? Romance? I mean, is there any romance in any of this at all? Who needs romance when you're doing it up the bum? Exactly. I exactly my point. I mean, if you've actually done that, which, by the way, I can see no point whatsoever in myself... You'd love to try it. I honestly would not. What, what is this modern obsession with that? Look, Jez, what I'm trying to say is, so for better or for worse, the 60s happened and now sex is fine. But can't we take the best of that? The nice music, the colours, the I have a dream, etc. But not have to face the squalor. Uh, you might want to give that a bit of a rinse. So he's talking about his, his toothpaste. So, yeah, why can't we just take the best of the 60s without the squalor? And do you really need romance if you're doing it up the bum? Questions to ponder. Do I really have to do this? What are you afraid of? So the this young man who's in an erotic a relationship is just busting down taboos. And uh, part of those taboos is that he's in blackface, not just blackface. He's just covered all over his body in black paint because he and his girlfriend want to bust out a, another taboo. All done. I don't know. Just feels almost wrong. We're breaking a taboo. Of course it feels wrong. We've got boundaries to smash, Jeremy. It's our duty to God, Shiva, Nasdaq. Whatever you want to call him. But are you sure this isn't racist? Jeremy, I come from America. I've seen the problems race brings up. Now fuck me and pretend I'm your mom. What? Why? You can't imagine your mom having sex with a black man? That's pretty racist, Jeremy. Well, it's not that. It's just... Mom? Really? Come on, you can't imagine... You can't imagine your mom having sex with a black man? Come on, are you some kind of racist? Yeah. Here, here on this show, we take the best of the gay bathhouse and, and we leave the rest. We take the best of the 60s, uh, but without the squalor, right? And we need to see Denzel Washington starring in Rambam, The Amazing Life of Moses Maimonides. So, yeah, we need a, an African uh, Rambam.
<laughs> that whoa whoa right you're probably saying 40 where in the devil is uh Peter Zion. Um, first of all, Russian disinformation has been picking up steadily during the Putin government, which, you know, is 22 years now. But it really wasn't until just before the election of Barack Obama that it really started getting big and that we started seeing things like the bot farm come into play. Now, the bot farm is designed to basically seek out issues that will cause angst among Americans and then try to drive wedges on social issues that will turn us against each other. Uh, so give you an example of some of their bigger successes until recently. Uh, if you go pre-2021, pre pre-2020, let's start there. Uh, probably the biggest ones were trying to take issues such as Black Lives Matter and coordinate action with groups that were opposed to Black Lives Matter. So, for example, if you were attending a BLM uh, event and you discovered that there was a Blue Lives Matter event very close by, that was probably arranged by uh, Russian agitation and propaganda. Uh, similar issues have happened on both sides of the abortion issue. Uh, similar issues have happened uh, more recently on uh, COVID. Uh, if you believe that COVID will make you magnetic or if you believe that the VARES database is a hit list, uh, you have fallen prey to Russian propaganda. Uh, if this is not limited to the right by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Putin himself has led propaganda effort against, say, uh, frack natural gas and oil. Uh, pretty much every claim out there from the fact that the fracking fluid is uh, cancer-causing to that it's going to ruin water supplies, uh, those all originated in Russian propaganda. In fact, in many ways, the modern environmental movement has some of its roots, not all, but some of them in Russian propaganda that dates back to the late 1960s. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, when the United States had just nuked two Japanese cities and was in the process of building out a nuclear attack fleet and building civilian nuclear power reactors, in the 1950s and early 1960s, Americans were broadly okay with all of this. But uh, Russian propaganda, then Soviet propaganda, started agitating and gave some of the founding roots to what we now know as the environmental movement. Now, it's obviously taken on its own life since then, uh, but the Russians have never stopped trying to malign Western oil and natural gas production in order to give them more leverage, and it's worked very, very well in Europe. Okay, back to the Lord of the Rings, woke Lord of the Rings controversy. Derek Thompson from The Atlantic tweets, the reactionary wine fest about Black actors getting jobs in TV projects that some conservatives imagined as whites-only spaces is profoundly dumb. And then response on Twitter, it's not dumb. It is brainwashing and symbolic replacement. Right? It, this guy does a good job of articulating what I think many people feel. Nobody had any problem with Black Panther. The point is not to give black representation, but to show white people being replaced. And the why do you care is part of the gaslighting is particularly offensive case of the Lord of the Rings, which was consciously envisioned as an Anglo-Saxon and European myth. It's not conservatives who imagine Middle-earth being whites only. It is Tolkien, not because he had anything against black people, but because he was writing a story about ancient Egypt. Nobody has any problem with Wakanda being all black. So stop gaslighting people about what is happening. And if there was anyone that Tolkien was racist against, it was the French. If you're going to make a PC adaptation of the Lord of the Rings, should have uh, medieval elves with mustaches who play the accordion and say French things. Putting politics aside on an artistic level, it shows pure hackery, creates permanent cognitive dissonance, which makes it impossible to suspend disbelief and enjoy the show. It's just bad. So, yeah, I prefer, generally speaking, to watch shows that I can relate to. It is easier for me to relate to people of the same race, same religion, uh, similar politics, or just scenarios that uh, make sense to me. I'm pretty well read in English history. I I'm not so well read in African history, right? I primarily want to watch shows that, uh, that I can connect with, and race is sometimes a component of what helps me to connect with, with a show. And so this you know, massive drive to you know force black characters into 
scenarios, historical stories, uh, professions where they're simply not there in real life in very large numbers. It's it's off-putting, and it gets in the way of my enjoyment of many a movie, many of a TV show. Now, other times, you know, I enjoy watching uh, Denzel Washington or Will Smith, but sticking them into you know Lord of the Rings, yeah, it's it's a little off-putting. Where we've seen an almost collapse in the ability of any of the mainland states in Europe to produce natural gas and oil at all, uh, because of public opposition that is rooted in Russian propaganda. In no place has been this been more true, and more dramatic, and have a bigger impact on policy and strategy than in Germany, where you know Germany 20 years ago is still producing almost half of the natural gas that it used. Now it's less than I believe five percent today, uh, and most of the methods that were used to produce that gas in Germany in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s are now actually illegal in Germany. So. If you want to talk about the two biggest successes uh, that the Russians have experienced with their propaganda in recent decades, number one is in Germany with energy policy, and number two is in the United States with vaccine policy, because we, we have over a million dead Americans because of COVID, and the Russians are literally celebrating because they've never been able to kill that many Americans, uh, and certainly without uh, generating a lot of retaliation from the White House. Okay, now... At the moment, a lot of Russian <coughs> excuse me. At the moment, a lot of Russian propaganda is in abeyance because as soon as the Ukraine war started, uh, a lot of Western institutions, whether intelligence or security or regulation, shut down a lot of the avenues that the Russians have for pushing disinformation into Western societies. Uh, that's great. I saw, <laughs> I saw that on my own feed, where probably half of the shit posting uh, that was hitting my feed on Twitter disappeared in a matter of like four days. Uh, since then, they've had to become more direct and working through a series of shills that they literally pay. Um, there's any number of those that are opportunities, and some of these people are actually in public office. Uh, the two that are, of course, most note are Viktor Orban, who is the Prime Minister of Hungary, is just a Russian stooge at this point, and Josh Hawley, the uh, Republican uh, Senator from Missouri, is, if not on the payroll, really, really dumb and falling for everything that they tell him. Oh, and by the way, by the way, by the way, people do not email me things uh, about COVID or about environmental issues that I'm going to be talking about here, uh, proving that I'm on the wrong side of things, because nine times out of ten, what you send me is a word-for-word -word syntax paste from Russian disinformation. I mean, honestly, just go on and Google any phrase that sounds a little off, and you will find hits for it in Russian media. Um, I know it hurts. Nobody wants to be told that they've fallen for something. That's part of the power of propaganda, is once you've fallen for it, you have a vested personal ego interest in following through, but it honestly is just leading you to make worse and worse and worse decisions. Okay, so why do the Russians do this? Uh, in part, it's from a position of weakness. The Russians now know, uh, without a doubt, that they can't face American forces on the battlefield. The Ukraine war has proven that. But part of it is rooted in what they know and what they're capable of. Yes, I agree with what uh, Peter Zion is, is saying here. Hang on, I've got to switch hands. This is a long one. We're already at six minutes. Um... Russian territory is not like the West. It's not like the United States in specific. So here in the United States, the land is great, and there's a lot of natural buffers between American population centers and other population centers. So our government has always been able to take a bit of a backseat. That's one of the reasons it's just so painfully incompetent at so many things. It's, it's never had to be good. That's not how it works in Russia. Russia is a cold-tempered territory with fickle precipitation. The land quality is abysmal. Population density is low. There are no internal barriers to movement. So when the Russian ethnicity settled in the area of what is today Moscow, you know, centuries ago, they discovered that the only way that they could even theoretically secure themselves was to expand and to turn all of their neighbors into buffer states and then all of the neighbors around that into buffer states and slowly okay so i think richard's done some sharp analysis uh, richard spencer on this theme as well so i was just reading a terrific uh, post on substack by razib khan he's from the caribbean and come on man i'm trying to do a show here and he's got this Okay, there we go. He's got this uh, post on Substack. Thanksgiving squabbles are a feature, not a bug. How eternally unsettled debates are the lifeblood of the Republic. So 
his overall point that our political differences are largely based in our genetics, all right? So we have these eternally unsettled debates, the lifeblood of this republic, but these these political differences don't just go back to the right and left of the uh, of the the French parliament what was that towards the end of the 18th century where the trads the, the conservatives sat on the right and the the libs the, the lefties sat on the left but these go back thousands of years basically between say the the populists and the elites between those who think the traditional ways of of doing things are best and those who think, hey, we need to innovate. And we have these two tendencies because they have proven to be evolutionarily adaptive, right? So conservative fears about lack of order and contagion have proven evolutionarily adaptive, and left-wing perspectives on let's try some new approaches, let's do things differently, that has also proven adaptive. Leave genocide out, uh, the ones that were closer while you absorb even more. And what used to be a single principality within just a few dozen miles of Moscow got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually became the biggest country on earth. But that means that Russia is not a country or a state in the way we think of the terms. It's a multi-ethnic empire. Laponia says dismissing any dissent because it is Russian propaganda is extremely low IQ, just a cope for being too lazy and too unintelligent to think through a problem. But nowhere does he dismiss or dissent as being Russian propaganda. Do you deny that there's any Russian propaganda, uh, Laponius? Obviously, Russia has an interest in creating a disunited United States, just as England has had a strong interest for centuries in promoting a disunited Europe, and just as the elites have an interest in promoting a divided populace with whom they can make strategic alliances to retain power as opposed to a populist rebellion where the people come together and coalesce. No, he didn't just say that all dissent is Russian propaganda. He didn't say anything of the like, and it's not even worth uh, replaying it. Uh, it's a ridiculous point. So Abraham Lincoln, in a famous 1858 speech, says a house divided cannot stand. But obviously, there are different, you know, genetically based reactions to what goes on in life. And some genetically based reactions are going to be more adaptive in certain situations. And other genetically based adaptations are going to be more adaptive in different situations. So the modern origins of the terms right and left date to the French Republic, but the Latin that underlies the labels popularis favoring the people and the optimates favoring the best. Now, highlight the left-wing populism and right-wing elitism, which have, have defined history for thousands of years. So left and right are concrete manifestations in particular times and places, but they reflect universal human intuitions, dispositions, and preferences, which are unique to neither time nor place. They're not just social and historical, but they are deep individual identities that develop out of our genetics. So you may lament all the strife and conflict in the news, but you can also take this perspective that this is the glorious birthright of a species that has evolved to endure. Right. So the roots of our political differences and the passions that they unleash lie in our genes they will always be with us, no matter the prevailing winds of social conditions. They are an outgrowth of our evolutionary histories. 
So in America, we have a narrative that individuals in a democratic society, you know, make their own decisions of their own free will. And, you know, you can make of yourself what you will. So free will, agency, conscience reign supreme in American rhetoric. And in this platonic ideal of the American Republic, citizens calmly listen and reflect upon the sage arguments of their representatives. But the reality is much different. Deciding whether we identify on the left or the right is filtered through our values, through our experiences, through our family, through our culture, and through our genes. So we may give reason the full credit for our politics, but our reasoning is the collective outcome of all sorts of separate votes cast by cold personal self-interest, passion, social conformity, individual intuitions and hunches, and our biological heritage. So one way of understanding the current political climate is that the Republicans embody the strict father model, right? Standards. You have to live up to these standards. And if you misbehave, then you get punished. And Democrats and liberals adhere to the nurturing parent model, the the mother model. So you've got the daddy party, the Republicans, and the mummy party on the left. We've got conservatives who want to conserve the old and traditional ways of doing things, and people on the left who want to create better and new ways of doing things. So in the 1970s, Argentina was ruled by a right-wing military junta, and it deliberately placed infants of murdered left-wing dissidents into conservative homes. And many of these adopted men and women once they learned of their true backgrounds, they always thought that they were different somehow, right? They were attracted to left-wing politics as they matured just as their biological parents had been, in contrast to the conservatism of their adoptive parents. So politics, along with many other traits, contains a significant genetic component. Ford's booster adult memory fails him. Peter Zion just said the emails people send him are often Russian propaganda. Aha, but that wasn't your assertion, Laponius. Your assertion was dismissing any dissent because it's Russian propaganda is extremely low IQ. He never did that. All right, so I'm calling you out for lying about what he said. And you're trying to claim, oh, no, I didn't lie. That's exactly what he said. Just a code for being too lazy, too unintelligent to think through a problem. No. The cope is that you deliberately misquoted and distorted what he said to try to make him look like an idiot. So there's the quote. There's the coping, mate. So sometimes there is real-life Russian propaganda, and sometimes Russian propaganda is a term of opprobrium that is thrown at many things that are not Russian propaganda. So 40 stands in the middle athwart these two competing streams, I don't automatically dismiss the term Russian propaganda and I don't automatically bow down to it. It is there, it occurs, and uh, sometimes it's important and sometimes it is given an importance it does not possess. For example, Russian propaganda did not decide the 2016 election. Uh, Russian propaganda is not changing people's minds, but Russian propaganda can make civil discourse a little more difficult in certain situations. It can contribute to added tension between Americans. But it's not one of America's top 50 problems, right? Russian propaganda, not among our top 50 problems. 
So political ideology is a continuous quantitative trait like height and intelligence. There are many genes that control variation and like height and intelligence, it expresses itself differently in different environments. So you have societies where individual political expression is sharply restricted. You've got autocratic monarchies like Saudi Arabia. You've got authoritarian communist regimes like China. So if you live there, your ideological orientation is a moot point. But political preference comes to the fore in societies where your choices actually matter and where making political choices is seen as the patriotic and responsible thing to do. So we've got cultural universals like dance, religion, or art. We've got a spectrum of variation in political ideology, and all these things have a deep basis in our evolutionary origins. So all sorts of cultural and political threads that cropped up in ancient Rome still echo down to the present at our dining tables. So you've got factions that want to take the bold step of leaving the familiar. Others prefer what is well known. Some people are quite open to uprooting themselves. Others prefer to heed the wisdom imparted by their elders. So for those on the right, ancient rules are like gold. Novel experiences are an unfathomable gamble. So old ways are often the best adaptive fit to stable local ecologies. So sometimes you have a group where everyone is low on openness, very conscientious in adhering to tradition, but you miss out on new opportunities. So the potato was cultivated in Russia only after 1850 because of resistance from conservative peasants. So Russian elites had long tried to promote the potato, going back to Catherine the Great, but the conservative serfs balked, and that delayed the development of the, the Russian economy and the Russian diet. Now, by contrast to Russia and Ireland, peasants adopted the potato very early, made it a stable crop by 1810, and uh, Ireland underwent a population explosion, but then there was the Great Potato Famine. So Irish openness to the new was too enthusiastic when disease struck. They were over-reliant on a single crop. So sometimes old traditions and old customs make you robust to the vicissitudes and enthusiasms of the present. And this is the raw material of human evolution. So our ability to adapt to societies relies on individual variation so that not everyone is always going to be on the same page. So in early 2020, COVID hawks were a helter-skelter band of heterodox heretics, left-wing, right-wing, but all united in their suspicion of authority. So you had Anthony Fauci in late January 2020 denying that COVID was anything to worry about. But thinking outside the box is not always beneficial. And so COVID-19 was preceded by H1N1, where it turned out the worry warts were wrong, and business as usual was the best approach. So the American mind is kind of conditioned to expect linear progress, that to all arguments there is a resolution. But uh, political ideology and passions are not purely social phenomena. They can't be just neatly engineered and argued away with the passage of time. And because of that, it has large populations, roughly a quarter of the population today. Might be up to 30 or 30% today because of the Russian demographic bomb, that's called 30%, uh, that are not Russian, that don't see themselves as Russian. And so what the Russians have to do is shoot through those people with as much intelligence penetration as they possibly can, so that if there's ever a hint of dissent, they can then rub it out. 
the military is needed on the frontier. It can't do that in a way that, say, the Iranians do. So it has to be the intel services. And the intel services are always going to be operating at an American disadvantage to the occupied populations, ergo propaganda. So any propaganda and misinformation that we are seeing in the United States or in the West in general, the wider world, is nothing compared to the general operating principles that the Russians operate at home. Yes, they need this in order to make sure that the Russian population doesn't rebel. Russia is not a great place to live. But it's absolutely essential that they have it for all of their occupied territories. And remember, the Russians see their territory as indefensible. That's why they have to expand. They hope to reach a series of choke points, of gateways, places like the Polish Plain, the Bessarabian Gap, uh, the Altai Gap, things like that. But the further out you go from Moscow, the more likely that it is non-Russians occupying the territory. So if you had a... Right, you're sick. I understand. You're sick of hearing Peter Zion, and what you really want to hear about are what are some concrete ways that you can improve and encourage ourselves to do things that are in our best interest. We will provide a safe, loving environment. So when we make mistakes, when we have failures, we are still accepting of ourselves as lovable, albeit fallible. And we pay attention to ourselves. We learn what we like and we actually enjoy spending time with ourselves, figuring out kind of what makes us tick. So what are some tips to develop this secure attachment? Sounds easier than it may be. Mindfulness is the first one. And I know I talk about mindfulness a lot. But in order to create a secure attachment, you have to pay attention. You have to be aware of your thoughts, wants, and needs. So setting a push notification in your phone to do mindfulness check-ins three times a day can be... So I don't do that, but I have experienced benefits. I do about 10 minutes of meditation a day. I use Daniel Siegel's... uh, wheel of awareness meditation exercise so there was a time maybe a couple of years where i was doing like 30 minutes of this meditative exercise every morning so now i've got it down to about 10 minutes but uh, some mornings i'll only do one minute but i I find that just kind of getting centered and and calming down is is good for me so somewhere between two five ten minutes of dan siegel's wheel of awareness meditative practice i find is Be really helpful and just check in with yourself. Think, how am I feeling physically? How am I feeling emotionally? So this is a time, please let me know how you're feeling physically. Please let me know in the chat how you're feeling emotionally. What are my thoughts right now? And let me know, please tell me what are your thoughts right now? Because you matter. You're special to me. What do I need in order to improve the next moment? That's all. Very simple, straight to the point. But that'll help you become more aware of your thoughts, wants, and needs in the moment. Validate and respond to your thoughts, wants, and needs. This has helped me. I take out a piece of paper and I just start writing. This is what I'm grateful for. This is what I'm thinking about. This is what's bugging me right now. This is what I I want to accomplish. This is what I'm trying to figure out. And... Like learning to to be okay and at home with myself and to learn to be a good friend to myself. I find these tips useful. If you are in a meeting and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is dreadfully boring. All right. You feel bored right now. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how you feel. 
Now, respond by identifying what can I do to improve the next moment. Probably not appropriate to get up and walk out of the room. But you can respond, for example, by doodling on a piece of paper or reminding yourself that the meeting will be over in 20 more minutes. But you're validating how you're feeling. You're not telling yourself that you should feel this way or you shouldn't feel this way. You're just acknowledging, okay, it is what it is. Now, what do I do about it? So that sounds like really trite, but that's really helped me. Like coming to coming to a sense of ease with with my past so that I'm not like just filled with, with shame and anxiety and, and self-hatred and self-loathing. But okay, given who I was at the time, I could not have uh, acted differently. And you know, coming, coming to terms with, okay, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. I'm feeling angry right now. I really blew that social interaction. I feel lonely right now. Or, you know, man, I just did a YouTube show and it sucked. All right. Just, you know, recognizing those feelings, maybe being a good friend to myself, noting them, writing them down, and coming to a greater sense of ease with what's going on inside of me. That helps me to have a greater sense of ease with what's going on outside of me. And that enables me to provide this this uh, stunning, you know, objective analysis of reality that, that drives these enormous audiences. Like right now, 18 live viewers. Wow. Replace critical self-talk with words of encouragement. Instead of listening to that voice in the back of your head that says, you can't do that. Or why would you want to try? The person who is securely attached to themselves provides themselves with a cur- encouragement. They say, Okay, I've never. I remember for years, my therapist would tell me, be a good friend to yourself. And it took years and years and years before I even got the slightest glimmerings of what that meant. I think I was in my second year of Alexander Technique training when at the end of training on Friday, someone asked me what I planned to do that weekend. And I said, uh, I plan to go home and to be gentle with myself. I never thought of about being uh, gentle with myself. I tended to be really harsh on myself and harsh on other people. But I find that I relate to other people pretty similarly to the way I relate to myself. So the more at ease I am with me, the more at ease I'm going to be with other people. And then when other people sense that I'm at ease with them, they're more likely to be at ease with me. And so it seems to promote getting along with people which begins with getting along with myself and doing these trite things that she's talking about. Done this before, but heck, let's give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? Or they give themselves encouragement after a failure, reminding themselves that, hey, at least you tried. Or what can we learn from this? You're still lovable. It doesn't mean that you're a failure. It means that you're not so good at whatever you just failed at. Regularly remind yourself and your inner child that you are not your actions or thoughts. You can fail at something. It doesn't mean you're a failure. You can make a bad choice or you can behave badly. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you acted badly. And you can make amends for that. You can learn and move on from it. But it doesn't mean you're a bad person. So separating the difference is really important. And finally, practice the loving kindness meditation with your inner child. 
so in the 1980s there would be all these pledge drives on pbs and they'd often give away john bradshaw books like healing the shame that binds you reclaiming and championing your inner child you know, creating love family secrets bradshaw of the family a new way of creating solid self-esteem and post-romantic stress disorder like and i just thought these were the, like the, the stupidest dumbest you know topics imaginable i just had nothing but contempt but now i know people who are doing inner child work and it's made a tremendous difference like they are happier and they are more effective so i haven't done that much inner child work it's not really my cup of tea but uh some people certainly seem to to benefit from it yeah i think it's just just part of of coming to terms with yourself perhaps it's it's never too late to have a happy childhood and i can look back on embarrassing shameful ugly things that, that i did as a kid and have some compassion not just for the other people who i negatively affected but for myself and what was driving me at the time i was doing the best i had with the tools i had there's a part of all of us that is formed of with all of those memories from childhood for some people it's a very happy inner child for other people it is a very sad or scared inner child whatever your inner child is practice the loving kindness meditation every single day thinking to yourself i wish for you to have health safety and contentment and send those thoughts send those energies to that child like a bubble that will envelop them and help them feel safe and comforted if the videos on this channel have been helpful for you please support us in our thank you thank you so anyone else watch uh peep show fuck me and pretend i'm your mom what why you can't imagine your mom having sex with a black man? That's pretty racist, Jeremy. Well, it's not that. It's just... Mom? Really? Mommy? Oh, I'm sorry, Nancy. I can't do it. I'm not getting anything. I'm sorry. Just can't. Okay, that's it. Bye-bye.